Well, good morning, guys. It is a joy to get to listen to you guys worship as we end this semester this morning. Uh, thank you guys for leading us. We are going to be actually, as we end our semester, stepping out of the book of Acts this morning. And actually, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles open to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, if you're anything like me, I still use my table of contents, so don't be ashamed. Feel free to flip over there. Uh, 2 Samuel comes uh, after first five, six books of your Bible. You have Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, and then you into the historical section, into the Samuels. We're going to be 2 Samuel chapter 11. Last announcement for you guys this Sunday, last college class for the fall, single tier, right? Uh, but we will come back January 13th in the spring as you guys come back. It'll be the Sunday right before classes start up. So if you're back early, we'll be here. We'd love to uh, begin the semester with you guys January 13th, all right? So we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 11 this morning, but I, I think about this time in the semester, a lot of you guys have started to watch your favorite Christmas movies, all right? Uh, I think everyone has their favorite, everyone has kind of uh, one of their go-to Christmas movies. For some of you guys, it's The Elf. Anyone? All right. Uh, for some of you guys, it might be a little bit more old school. It's Christmas Vacation. I don't know if you guys go that way. Uh, and what I love about this time of year, too, is you start to watch some of those frequently watched movies, is that you begin to realize that a lot of your vocabulary, a lot of the phrases that you say just come from those movies, and you've been quoting it so long, you think it's the way you talk, and you realize, no, that came from Christmas Vacation, that came from Elf, right? I'm sure you guys have been doing that even this week. Uh, for some of you guys, it might be a little bit more old school. This might take you back a little bit further, but for some of y'all, y'all loved growing up Home Alone. Anyone? All right. I was kind of sweating that. I didn't know if you guys loved Home Alone or not. All right. I, growing up, I love that movie. All right. I think, think it's a bit of a cult classic. If you guys remember uh, Macaulay Culkin, God bless his little precious self before he got addicted to drugs at that time. All right. Um, sorry. I don't know what that was about. Um, but God bless him. Precious little boy that he was at the time. You know, he wakes up. His parents are gone. They're off on a uh, family vacation. They totally forgot him. He doesn't panic. He actually thinks this is the best thing, right? And so he just goes crazy. He starts ordering pizza. He starts watching movies all the time. He starts jumping on the bed, doing all the things that he's always wanted to do, which is really what you guys are already thinking about for the few days that you'll have after finals, right? Of all the things that you want to do and how you're going to go crazy and how you're going to let your hair down, kick your feet up and what you're going to do, right? But at some point in time, as he's kind of wasting away, just enjoying the good life, right? Crisis hits. The wet bandits come about, if you guys remember them. Vicious criminal uh, tandem that is ransacking the neighborhood and they've targeted his family's house, right? And so it's kind of that crisis moment that kind of kicks him in the gear as he goes from kind of wasting away to really engage in a task and into a call, into a mission, really. Uh, it's really that point in time he begins to think of all the ways that he can prank these guys and really uh, kind of, in a sense, have an attack plan against these guys when they come at him. And it becomes uh, quite a bit of a deal. He even gets to know his neighbor that everyone's creeped out by, kind of really even engages the neighborhood. Awesome, awesome movie. It's one of my all-time favorites, all right? What I love about that movie is that it kind of starts out with an initial time where he's just kind of wasting away doing whatever, right? But then there's kind of this crisis moment where he has to kind of kick in gear and engage. And I think that's not just a cult classic movie, but I think it's a bit of a picture of what I hope your winter break is going to be like, right? Every single one of you guys is not right now dreaming of Santa and his elves, all right? Every single one of you guys right now is dreaming of a bed that's going to hold you for days, Right? And a schedule that's going to hold nothing, nothing at all for days, right? That is your great dream. That is your oasis that everyone is being called toward and just beckoned slowly. But surely some of you guys are already in it. And again, shame on you for gloating over everybody else, all right? Some of you guys are longingly looking at that. You have three, four, five finals left to go. But eventually, at the end of this week, you will be there, all right? And one of the things I want to say to you guys is I think a danger exists because every single one of us is there. Every single one of us is going to pull back, kick our feet up, let our hair down if you have hair to let down, right? And just relax, all right? And one of the things I want to challenge you guys as you step into your winter break is this. I want to challenge you guys not just to pursue rest, but I want to challenge you to pursue refreshment. 
I really want to challenge you guys for the first few days, sure, kick back, relax, but then I want to really begin to push you guys to consider and put your winter break in front of the Lord and say, Lord, what is it you have for me this winter break? It's interesting, we're going to look at a passage this morning in 2 Samuel 11 that I really think is a passage that is absolutely familiar to you guys, and yet we're going to take it a direction that I can guarantee you guys have never heard it more than likely, all right? 2 Samuel 11 is a story of David and Bathsheba, all right? And I'll tell you guys, surprisingly, I don't think that story is primarily about sexual sin, all right? I know you guys have heard it over and over again. I'll tell you guys, we're going to talk a little bit about temptation this morning, but primarily we're not going to camp out there. I think there's something that occurs between chapter 10 and chapter 11 that is really in the law section between those chapters that really is critical for you and I as we understand what happens in chapter 11 to King David. And I think primarily what could happen to you and I as we pull back for a winter break. Ultimately, I want to ask the question, how do you not become an adulterer and a murderer this winter break? I'm just kidding, all right? Um, ultimately, ultimately, I want to say to you guys, how do you and I avoid a winter break hangover, all right? How do you guys begin to relax and refresh yourselves in a way that sure replenishes and, and rejuvenates you, but then does not move to the kind of wastefulness that will ruin your winter break and potentially even threaten your spring? In Second Samuel chapter 10, really, we're going to see David and the, and the army of Israel at war. They will accomplish much. We're going to see in chapter 10 that ultimately the Arameans and the Ammonites will come at King David and come at the army of Israel, and they will resist them, and they will fight well against them. In fact, they'll crush the Arameans, and the Ammonites will be on the ropes, and they'll be running for their lives. The fall will end, and chapter 10 will end really at the end of the fall, and King David and the nation of Israel has accomplished much, all right? But they've not yet finished the job. But winter will come, and what happens to the armies at that time is that come winter time, everyone would retreat and pull back. And so King David and the, and the army of Israel will pull back to Jerusalem where they will replenish themselves, they'll rejuvenate themselves, so that they'll be ready for war in the spring. When it's winter time, weather would be cold, it would be really difficult to travel, to move uh, horses, to move troops. And so at that point in time, people would typically pull back. And so as chapter 11 opens where we're going to be this morning, chapter 11 will open at the beginning of the spring, all right? Chapter 10 ends at the end of the fall. Chapter 11 opens at the beginning of the spring. And the great question is, you know what happens in chapter 11. What I want to draw your attention to this morning is what happens between the chapters. What potentially happened with David's winter break? And therefore, by extension, how do you and I avoid what he might have likely pursued and found true of his own winter break? Because I think ultimately David is going to rest in a way that will lead to a kind of hangover, not alcohol-induced, not literal, but figurative. One that he will be decapacitated essentially throughout the winter and he will not be ready when the spring comes and God comes calling for a task for the nation of Israel. Ultimately, we're going to have a great tragic chapter in chapter 11 all about sexual sin, but I don't think that's how we got there. I think a lot of things will transpire before we ever get into chapter 11 and I want to open chapter 11 up, especially the beginning of it, and begin to ask the question, what happened in David's winter break? You guys are there, Second Samuel chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 1. We find verse one, then it happened. I love the way the narrator will unfold this. We all know what happens. And so he just says, and then it happened. And he goes on and says, in the spring of the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the house, on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in his appearance. 
You guys all know where the story opens and where the story goes. I think for some of you guys, you're even aware of the opening of the story. But again, I want to drive your attention to the details here, the very opening and the setting. Setting is not just window dressing that I think even in these details of the setting, it's incredibly important that you and I grasp verses 1 and 2. In fact, we're going to camp out in verses 1 and 2 this morning, right? Notice that as uh, it opens, I think that ultimately what David should have done is that he should have stayed awake. But notice what happens. That in the spring, in the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. That David sent the wrong people to the task that God had, all right? David's going to send Joab, he's going to send his servants, he's going to send all of Israel. They all go out, and yet David stays behind, all right? The wrong person stays home, and in a sense, David stays home alone, and this isn't going to be Macaulay Culkin-like, all right? This isn't going to be rated for ABC Family, all right? What's going to unfold, really, you guys know where it's going, but it starts right here in verse 1, all right? It starts with a guy who is not at all in the right place or at the right time. And in fact, he's sending the wrong people to do the job that was his. But why? Why did he land here? I think ultimately you're going to get three different clues that you have a guy in the beginning of chapter 11 that is completely disengaged and that he's just checked out. All right. He's disengaged and he's checked out much like you guys will be in about three or four days when you guys take off from this place. Right. You just want to check out and you want to disengage from anything and everything. Right. David is going to check out, I think, the moment he got back from Jerusalem. And apparently, as we get into chapter 11, verse 1, and the spring comes, he is not yet re-engaged. Which, by extension, means he's disengaged the entirety of the winter break. All right? Clue number two is that he's going to stay in Jerusalem, so he's not in the right place at the right time. Clue number three, I think, is really interesting, too. You get, at the, at the beginning of verse 2, that when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. Right? It is evening, and David is just waking up. Why? Because he's got nothing else to do, right? This is a guy who is completely checked out and completely disengaged. He sends the wrong people to the task that is his. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he's created the wrong kind of pattern over the winter break. If he's sleeping in till evening at the very beginning of the spring, by extension, I think we can assume that he's been doing it all winter break, right? He had pulled back to rest and to rejuvenate, and apparently he's developed a pattern that has continued throughout the winter and has led to a kind of hangover that has spilled over even into the spring. If this guy had been engaged, I don't think that he would have stayed home. If this guy had been engaged, I don't think he falls into seeing a woman who's bathing and falls into adultery and then murder her, right? I think ultimately this guy is going to rest in a way that will lead to a kind of hangover that will completely cause him to check out and to disengage. One of the really interesting contrasts and ironies of King David here, really, as you see him, is not just the clues to his disengagements, but I think there's a great contrast to his past and his present. I want you guys to think back all the way back to 1 Samuel. You guys know this story as well. I think uh, the first moment we see David engaged in battle could not be more contrary to the way that we see him exit for battle here in 2 Samuel 11. Think about the story where David, a little, a little errand boy, shows up. He's passing out food to the commanders. He's passing out cheese to everybody, all right? And he shows up and he notices that all of Israel is arrayed in battle, but no one has stepped forward. And there's a guy named Goliath who's just taunting the armies of the living God. And little David says, who does this guy think he is? And why is everyone retreated and no one's willing to fight? And he says, hey, I'll stand up. I'll fight. Little precious boy David, shepherd boy, <laughs> Puts on an ar- uh, a chain of armor that's too heavy, takes it off. He steps out with his little sling slot and his little rocks, and he takes down Goliath in one shot, right? A guy that when the nation of Israel was taunted and when there was shame put on the nation of Israel, he is frustrated, he stands up, he gets up, and he will fight when no one else will. And it couldn't be more contrasted from what we see in Second Samuel 11. 
It's really interesting. If you look earlier in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, you're going to see that uh, eventually uh, David is going to send out some of his messengers and his soldiers to the king of, of the Ammonites. And they're going to end up shaving the guy's beards, the soldier's beards, in such a way that they will be flatly humiliated. All right. Those humiliated soldiers will come back to David and David is going to be upset. In fact, I, I think that ultimately that whatever was on their face was so humiliating <laughs> that David's going to be upset. But what's fascinating really as you look at the story in chapter 11 is that whatever shame he initially felt is gone. <laughs> The nation and the armies of Israel was taunted in 1 Samuel with Goliath and David stands up and he fights when no one else will. Here in 2 Samuel 10, the nation of Israel is taunted yet again. They're humiliated, those who are warriors, and this time David just stays in his bed and he won't fight when everyone else will. You could not have more of a contrast from the way that David first entered into battle and the way that he's going to exit from battle right here. The contrast is stunning. Again, but why? What happened? All right. I think ultimately we see again and again that this is a guy who is rested in, the way, in a certain way over the winter that he's caused him to disengage and to check out. He's just totally out. Everyone else is reengaged. Everyone else has gone to battle, but he's the only one stuck home and staying behind. Did he get comforted by all the extravagancies of the palace? Did he get comforted by the riches of being king and the ability to be in charge? I don't know. But I think you see a guy who had come back and apparently he had rested in a way that actually I don't think was restful at all. In fact, he was quite disengaged. I think he's going to ruin what, what God might have wanted to do in his winter and he's definitely going to ruin what God wanted to do with his spring. And because of a guy who's disengaged, you're going to get a spring in the life of King David that is not just tra- tragic, but leave a mark on him the rest of his life. I think primarily because it started here where he just disengaged. I want to challenge you guys as you guys head home here again, first few days, let me say, hey, Sleep it off, play video games, do whatever you guys got to do to just unwind and kind of recoup. But then at some point, you guys got to reassess and come back before the Lord and say, hey, Lord, what is it you have for me this winter break? I want to challenge you guys ultimately not to pursue rest, but refreshment. All right. I think rest for many of us is just complete disengagement, right? It's I don't want to be occupied with anything. I don't want to have to think. I don't want to have to be tasked with anything. I just want to rest and veg and check out. And there's a place for that. The challenge of that is that begins to lull you asleep in such a way that you begin to slowly but surely check out and disengage. And over the winter break, when you have incredible lack of structure, lack of responsibilities, lack of order, lack of uh, tasks that are in front of you guys, I want to especially say you guys got to make a plan as to how you will be refreshed. I don't want you guys just to disengage from those things that are good, but I want you guys to think through, hey, how can I engage in the things that are significant and are actually going to be refreshing? David's going to be resting over and over again. And apparently he doesn't think he's rested yet because he keeps sleeping. According to verse two, you can rest in a way that makes you feel more and more tired and that lulls you further and further to sleep, both literally and figuratively. So I want to say to you guys, as you look at your, as you look at your winter break, you need to make a plan as to how you're going to redeem that time and how you're going to be refreshed. Let me challenge you find some times to get in the word, have a plan as to what you're going to study this winter. Have a plan as to how you're going to get time with the Lord in prayer. Take some prayer walks. Take some times where you retreat away from family and from different things and you just spend some time sitting before the Lord. Take some time to memorize scripture. Take some time just to put the winter break itself before the Lord and say, Lord, hey, now that I can actually think again, what is it you want for my winter break? What is it that you want my eyes to be open to? What is it that you want me to be tasked with? Where is it that you want me to grow and to be stretched? And where is it you want me to serve you? It's so easy just to disengage and to check out which is why David does it, and which is why David is going to land in a whole heap of trouble that he could have avoided if he hadn't just checked out. All right. 
Secondly, I think one of the things you're going to see is it's not just that, uh, actually, I'm going to give you guys one quick quote from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul will say, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. I love the way that uh, he uses Ephesians 5, the word for time there. Is a, there's two different words in the Greek for time. One is chronos, one is kairos. Chronos denotes just sequential elements of time, but he uses the word kairos here, which denotes not just sequential amounts of time, but time that is seen as an opportunity. Paul's going to say that you need to make the most, you need to maximize the opportunity that is your time. And I want to say the same thing to you guys about your winter break. You're going to have some time on your hands this winter that I want to challenge you to redeem and to maximize and to use well. It is going to be so easy just to throw that away and to waste it and to disengage, but instead, how can you engage? How can you engage in those things that are spiritual, that are fruitful, and that are actually refreshing? What does that look like? Uh, Put your break before the Lord. I had a hairdresser. Uh, Paul said it this way. My hairdresser said it this way. All right. I had a hairdresser in high school. I'm serious. I'm quoting here. All right. Uh, I had a hairdresser in high school and uh, she cut my hair every few weeks and she had a plaque in there that I always just burned in my mind that said, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. All right. Sitting into you guys. All right. Take it from my hairdresser, if not from Paul. All right. Uh, That if you guys do not have a plan for your winter break, your plan will definitely come about. You will fail. You will waste it. If you don't have a plan to redeem your winter break as to what the Lord wants to do in and through you, then you will not accomplish anything unless you take some time and say, hey, Lord, what is it you have for me? What is it that you want me to pursue and to make a plan and to lay that out? If you do not plan, nothing will materialize, all right? I think David doesn't just disengage. I think David also needed to prepare to serve. One of the things we're going to see as we walk through the story that I think is often overlooked, it's not just the timing and what happens between chapter 10 and chapter 11, but I think one of the things that we see uh, that I think we often overlook in 2 Samuel 11 that many think would be about sexual sin is this. I think King David, as you look through 2 Samuel 11, was one who was all about the abuse of power, all right? I think it's not just a guy who had checked out and disengaged, but it is a guy who's using power completely for selfish motives. In fact, as you walk through the story, there's a Hebrew word that's repeated, I think, at least 11 times through the story. I want to walk you guys back through the text so as to highlight the word for you guys, because what you're going to see over and over again is that uh, the narrator is going to show us the repetition of the word sent. Notice how many times David is going to exercise his power. And when you notice him exercising his power, notice how many times it's for completely selfish motives. I want to begin back in verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers, and he took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, How have you, have you not come down from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, please place Uriah in the front of the line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men in the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech the son of Jerubbosheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebez? And why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field. But we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that her, that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You guys are incredibly familiar with the story. I know a lot of you guys are. One thing that, things that, that I think is incredibly interesting as you walk through the story is how over and over again you see David dispatching, giving orders, using and exercising his power for selfish means over and over again. As you guys head home, if you're anything like me when I headed home, I had all kinds of visions of all the meals my mom was going to make me. <laughs> all right. I had bags and bags of weeks of laundry. By this time of the semester, I was starting to rewear things just so I didn't have to do laundry so that mom could do it right. Uh, and I think a lot of you guys are in that spot. And I want to remind you guys, I think King David goes home at winter time. And I think his mindset is all about him, about he, how he needs to be refreshed and how he needs to rest. And that mindset continues not just through the winter, but even into the spring. All right. Ultimately, you guys are heading home not to a resort and spa, right? Where everyone's going to be beckoning at you hand and foot to serve you. But you're heading home to a place that you are called to serve and to lay your life down and to serve those that you're heading home to, all right? I think it's so easy to think, hey, I just need rest. I need my needs met. I need to be refilled. And if that's the case, spend a few days here before you go home if you need to. Because when you head home, you're leaving one spiritual battlefield and you're heading to another and you need to be ready to serve and you need to be ready to love well. Ultimately, I think David is going to head home with a completely selfish mindset that will dominate his winter and lead into the spring that will get him in all kinds of trouble. In fact, the contrast between David and Uriah could not be more stark. Think about it. Think how selfish David looks and think how selfless Uriah looks, right? David will not go to the battle, but Uriah has to be pulled out of the battle, right? David will enjoy one a wife who is not his own, and yet Uriah will not enjoy even his own wife, right? David is going to move and act so as to take Uriah's life, and yet Uriah is going to move and act so as to guard David's life, right? David is going to be concerned all about the personal interest of, of uh, Uriah, and yet Uriah is going to be concerned about the life and the welfare of David, 
Remember, David tells Uriah, I want you to go down the, the, to your wife's door. I want you guys to sleep there. And David's intention is to cover up over his sin because if, his, if Uriah will sleep with her, then everyone's going to think it's Uriah's child, right? Instead, what does Uriah do? He's unwilling to sleep with his own wife. And so he sits at the doorstep, not to his own house, but actually to the king's house. Even though he thinks he's not, or even though David thinks that he's not at war, uh, Uriah realizes, no, he still is. And he's going, he's, going, he's going to live just as the other soldiers are living. So he's going to guard King David's life. Incredible contrast between David and Uriah. David, who's all about his own interest. Uriah, who's about nothing about his own interest. Incredible contrast between David's selfishness and Uriah's selflessness. I think it's a lens that you and I miss as we look at 2 Samuel 11, realizing that and running to this idea of sexual sin so quickly and so predominantly that I think we really missed how greatly David had checked out and how greatly David had become self-absorbed. I don't think that if he fails, if he doesn't check out and if he's not so self-absorbed, I think he's at battle. He's not on a roof. He's not sleeping with another woman. It's not his wife. And then he's not killing Uriah. His entire winter led to a kind of hangover that consumed his winter and led into his spring. That's what I think you and I miss so often as we look at the story of David and Uriah. And so one of the things I want to challenge you guys to as you head home is this then, who can you serve and who can you love? As you guys step home, I want to challenge you guys. You put your your break before the Lord and say, Lord, hey, what is it you have for me? How is it that you want me to grow? But secondly, how is it you want me to serve over this winter break? What is it you have in store for me? I think David's eyes missed the opportunity that was there in his winter and will definitely miss the opportunity that was there in his spring. All right. I don't want you guys to miss the winter or the spring. Because the way that you handle the winter can lead over and even spill into your spring semester. And so maybe this semester you've seen God do some amazing things. Maybe you've seen him work in your own life in some really significant ways. Maybe you've begun to walk with him in a way that you've not walked with him in a long time. And now you're going to go home to a place where you're going to be ripped apart from a lot of the community that you've had here. You're going to go home to a place where you're not going to have a lot of structure. You're not going to have a lot of encouragement. You may not have a lot of community and a lot of chance to be reminded of truth and to be encouraged by the people of God. I want to challenge you as you do that, look for those that you can serve with. Look for the ways that you can serve and the ways that you can love others. I think as you guys step home to family, as you step home to high school friends, you have an incredible opportunity before you to share your faith and to share the gospel of what God has done for you and how he's begun to change your life. And as you step home to high school friends, as you step home to family who have not seen that transformation, it is hard to believe for them. Slowly but surely over time, as you continue to walk with them, you continue to live in front of them, they're going to begin to slowly but surely see exactly what God has been doing in your life. And that kind of testimony is far more powerful than anything else you can say. But as you speak the words of the gospel and as you live out in front of them, they're going to begin to see something and become convinced of it. You have an incredible opportunity as you go home this winter. Don't miss it, all right? Last thing I want you guys to see is that I think David was not prepared for temptation, all right? Uh, I think David disengaged. I think he was self-absorbed. And because of that, when temptation came, he really was not ready for it at all, all right? Um, even more so, I'd say, even if you guys engage and even as you're, if you guys are growing mightily and walking with the Lord over the winter break, if you're tasked, if you're sharing the, your faith, if you're serving at home, if you're serving in ways and being stretched, temptation is still going to come, all right? It comes for David who's checked out and disengaged. It can still come for you even if you're checked in and really engaged well. It doesn't mean that temptation won't come, but it means that you will be ready to handle it. I want to give you guys three quick uh, suggestions as you deal with temptation this winter break. First is this, eliminate the moment, all right? Again, that's why I think that context is so critical to this this passage. Again, I think if David was engaged, if he wasn't self-absorbed, he would have been at battle in this moment with Bathsheba 
would have been eliminated from the very beginning before it ever got off and running, right? The moment David is on a roof and he sees a beautiful woman naked bathing, he's in trouble and the game is over, right? All right, especially since he's self-absorbed. But if he was engaged and if he was not self-absorbed, that moment would have never happened and he would never have had that issue to begin with. Uh, A quote I ran across this week says this, and I think it fits greatly with David's situation. Our greatest battles don't usually come when we're working hard. They come when we have some leisure, when we've got some time on our hands and when we're bored, (laughs) right? I don't worry as much about my own walk with the Lord and temptation when I'm stressed, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm rocking, uh, when I've got a lot in front of me. But it's when I've been able to pull back, when I've been able to kick my feet up, when I'm bored, when I've got time on my hands, it's usually when I get myself in trouble. So I want to challenge you guys as you pull back for the winter break. Think about the situations that tempt you. Think about the settings that do tempt you and do not put yourself in those moments. Eliminate the opportunity before it's ever presented. I think that's probably what got David. He put himself in a position. He gave himself an opportunity that he never should have had. If he was checked in, if he wasn't bored out of his mind, he wouldn't have been strolling on the roof of the palace, all right? He would have been at war where he was supposed to be. I think one of the greatest things you guys can do is just engage and busy yourself. Put some things in front of you that you can run after. Work out. Uh, spend time with friends. Uh, be reading. Be pursuing some things that are significant and positive. Uh, another quote I ran across that I think is really significant along these lines is that sins of commission are often the results of sins of omission. The very things that we do often come as a result of some of the things that we've not done, right? Because of what David didn't do, he landed in himself in a place where he did something that was way beyond anyone, anything anyone imagined. I think sometimes when we pull back and we omit the very things that are significant and spiritually rejuvenating in our lives, then we land ourselves in a place where we may begin to commit the kinds of things that we never would have imagined. So don't take away the inputs in your lives. Engage yourself, stretch yourself, look to be serving so that you can eliminate some of these moments because you're somewhere else and you're in the right place and you're at the right time. Second of all, let me say this, extend your reach, all right? Uh, you guys have a lot of community in this place. You guys are going to go home often to homes that, with family that may not know the Lord. You're going to go home to high school friends that maybe didn't know you before you were walking with the Lord. And one of the things I want to challenge you guys to do is to extend your reach. David sends Joab, all of his servants, and all of Israel out to war. And so guess who's home alone? David, right? And when he's by himself without accountability, without community, he finds himself in a lot of trouble with a situation that begins to snowball really, really fast, right? I want to challenge you guys to extend your reach. Don't let yourselves drift from one another. Uh, Peter will say it like this in chapter 5. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I love verses 8 and 9. He says, resist the devil. And one of the ways that you resist the devil is the acknowledgement that there are brothers and sisters in the, in the Lord who are in other places experiencing the same thing. One of Satan's goals for your life is to, is to separate you out from the people of God so that your passion for Jesus begins to die out. Your passion for Jesus is a lot like a fire that is burning because logs have been put on top of one another and those logs together cause the flame and the passion that you have for Jesus to erupt higher and higher. And when you guys like logs are separated out from one another, the fire begins to die out because you were designed to walk with God with one another. So as you guys step toward the break, knowing whatever situations you're stepping into, let me encourage you, reach out to one another. Find some accountability even before you depart. Find someone that you're going to talk to on a weekly basis, if not daily, checking in and saying, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing with this temptation? How are you doing with this family member? How are you doing with this difficulty? How are you doing? Are you pursuing the goals that you've set in front of you? Or have you pulled back and completely disengaged? You need one another to do that.
Last thing, as we close out, I'd say this. Some of you guys know where the story goes. After 2 Samuel 11, David will fall into adultery. He'll fall into murder. And eventually, interestingly enough, the nation of Israel will not be able to eventually defeat the Ammonites who are here in chapter 10 and 11 until David finally confesses and deals with this sin that began in chapter 11. One of the things I want to challenge you guys to as you uh, head off to the winter break is that some of you guys, whether it be this fall or maybe even the things that may occur this winter, you guys are going to find yourselves in places that you did not imagine with temptations that you maybe don't handle perfectly. And if that's the case, the temptation can be very easily to let it snowball, to begin to cover it up, to pull away from one another. And let me plead with you, don't do that. Uh, If you fall into things that you did not imagine, realize that the grace of God will always abound over those things. Do not run away from God. It doesn't matter what your winter ends up looking like. It doesn't matter where David's spring goes. He's eventually going to come back before the Lord and the Lord can handle it because his grace is always sufficient. It's always enough. It always abounds over no matter where we've been, no matter what's happened. So let me challenge you guys as you step into the winter, realize what David will confess uh, a little while later in Psalm 51 is so significant. He says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. As you guys walk into the break, I don't know where you guys have been this fall. I don't know what's going to unfold this winter break. But if you guys find yourself in a place, despite some of this challenge, where you go, hey, I remember hearing all about this, but I checked out. I remember hearing all about this, but I got home and I disengaged in such a way that I really got self-absorbed. I landed in temptations that I did not handle well. If you land in that place, please do not pull away from the grace of God. Please do not pull away from the grace of God. Don't pull back from God as if he doesn't know or as if he can't handle it. (laughs) It's the reason why he gave his son, Jesus Christ. The reason why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, this Christmas season is reminded of that so that he could identify with you and I, so that he could stand in the gap for our sins as our substitute. And as God, he would be a perfect sacrifice that God would be pleased with so that we would be redeemed from our sins by a savior who would come to give peace to the world. That's the great wonder of the Christmas season. So as you guys pull back this winter break, no matter where it is you guys land, remember that Jesus came to save us from our sins and no matter how great those get, no matter how much they may snowball, his grace is always sufficient and so don't pull away from him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, this may be the first time, this first Christmas season, that you have an opportunity to experience his grace for the first time. And what an amazing Christmas that would be to realize that there was one who loved you enough to come for you. One who loved you enough to come from the heavens itself and take on human flesh so that he could identify with you. That God would not be one who couldn't understand us, that would hold us at an arm's distance, but Jesus came to open his arms wide so that he could grasp us, reconcile us to him by his death and his resurrection on a cross. That is the great wonder of Christmas and don't let it slip, whether you know Jesus this morning or whether you don't. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks. That even in a story that is of great such tragedy in 2 Samuel 11, I thank you for some really helpful reminders in it. I thank you that even for David, a man that was after your own heart, I thank you that even in the realization that he would fail mightily, that your grace was sufficient. Your grace was sufficient to cover murder. Your grace was sufficient to cover even adultery at a grand scale in front of an entire nation of your chosen leader. And if your grace can cover that one, then it can cover us. And Father, I pray that as we walk and we pull back for this winter break, Lord, I pray that you'd meet us in it. I pray that you'd allow us to experience your grace at a whole different and a whole deeper level. I pray that this winter break, we would not check out from you, uh, that we would not put you off to the wayside, but that we would find each and every day some time just to pull away and to meet with you and to hear your voice. May you guide us, may you call us, may you draw us deeper to you this winter break. May we be refreshed in your presence. And Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see as well what you have in store for us. 
where we're to serve, where we're to speak of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're to stand up for you, and where we're just to be quiet and where we're to serve at times. Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see what you have in store. And I pray that you would draw us back in the spring ready to go having not just wasted a winter, but really ready and engaged to go with the spring to really to run after all that you have in store and all that you have prepared ahead of time for us, Lord. Allow our winters to be redeemed. May you move in them in ways beyond anything we could have anticipated and may you use us for your glory's sake and for your name's sake. And then may you draw us back to spring ready to walk with you and ready to serve with you. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your grace. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning. I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas. We're praying for you guys during finals, and we'll see you guys in January. Y'all have a good one.